0: Welcome to episode 471 with my guest Al Bell. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. I am not a therapist. Uh, This is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, go there. Fill out a survey. Maybe we'll read your survey on the air. Um, check out the forum. There's a lot of really cool, supportive people there. All kinds of stuff on the website. Um, I was thinking the, uh, the other day, actually, I was talking to somebody, and I was t- talking about my past, and my struggles with self-obsession and just kind of a dark corner that I got into in my life. And it, I had all these things externally that I had dreamed of having when I was younger, yet I felt so empty inside. And as I look back now, I, I realized that the price of selfishness is loneliness. And I couldn't see that at the time. I thought, that to survive, I needed to think about myself more. And I didn't realize that help was 180 degrees away from that, that it was not trying to impress people, but to be vulnerable, to be honest, to be my authentic self. And then I could allow people to love me, and then that's when I began to feel connection, and the loneliness eased took me a long time to realize that. Uh, I want to read something from our struggle in the sentence survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself awkward side hug. And about her anorexia, she writes, If there is less of me, then maybe there will be less of me to hate. Oh, that's, so, that's so profound. About her self-harm, it hurts less than feeling everything and nothing at the same time. Isn't that funny how we can feel numb and overwhelmed at the same time? Thank you for that. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Rowan. and She writes, I was in church today with my parents, silently seething at the system that has taken God and turned him into a symbol of hate for so many groups. And I'm not going to lie, I was ready to give up on it all, faith, everything. But then the communion hymn began, and I heard the young girl behind me singing with all of her heart, Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? And suddenly I realized, God isn't about the system that has corrupted his image. He is about this young girl unabashedly asking if she is the one who will do great things in his name. I sang with her for the remainder of the song, and I believe that little girl just saved my faith. No that's beautiful that is beautiful i love those moments when we just feel like the the universe is talking to us and saying something to keep us going this is an email that i wanted to um read this was something that i got um somebody had had written me about struggling with intrusive thoughts. They had related very much to the um, one of the episodes that we had with uh, the therapist, Kimberly Quinlan, and she specializes in OCD. And this person had written to me uh, saying how much she related to the episode with Kimberly and how helpful it was to her. And I said, if you wanted to write something for the website about your struggle with intrusive thoughts uh that might be cool and then uh, and so she she did and then i thought you know what i'd actually like to read this on air uh and she calls herself cameron and she writes first and foremost anyone who has intrusive thoughts ocd should know that they are kind loving and gentle people who would never act on their thoughts the fact that the thoughts Upset or disturb you is evidence of this, which is helpful to remember when you're in real despair. Next, know that you are not alone. I think the condition itself leads to many of us with it to isolate. It's embarrassing and frightening to tell others that you have disturbing thoughts you feel you can't control. So it's our tendency to keep it to ourselves and force ourselves to deal with it alone. Anyone doing this right now should know that this fuels the OCD. It's like a parasite that happily dines on your fear and uses it to inflate the intensity of your thoughts. This creates more fear and the cycle continues. Finding a way to share what is happening to you with others is really important in keeping your OCD in check. A good therapist should be able to listen to you without judgment or fear and help you learn ways to quiet the parasite. If you can't afford or find a good therapist, think about who in your family or friend circle you could share this with that would be be kind and compassionate about it. If you don't have that kind of support in your life, look online for others who are suffering as you are. I use the word suffering purposely here, as this condition can be very painful, and anyone who supports you should acknowledge that. A trick that sometimes helps me is distancing myself from the parasite. I imagine that the thoughts I'm having are the parasite's thoughts, not mine. Doing this allows me to hear them without attaching to them. I see the parasite as a giant tick-like bug that has many mouths with sharp teeth. It uses its mouths to speak the thoughts, and then any fear they cause me, it gobbles up with its sharp teeth. This image reminds me that while the thoughts happen in my head, I'm not the one generating them. Know that if you try this technique or any other, the parasite is sneaky. It will try to convince you that doing this isn't healthy because it covers up the real you, or maybe it will tell you that it will never work, etc. When you find this happening, try not to argue with the parasite. Just observe as best you can. Another trick is to intentionally change the words you're hearing. When you have a lot of intrusive thoughts, start saying to yourself or out loud if you can, nonsense words like the kind of thing you hear aliens speaking in Star Wars. Continue this without stopping for as long as you can. This also works with random words, just thinking or saying them one after the other. For instance, the red pencil under the bridge asks tacos to work on farms in the dark. Sometimes they are so goofy they will make you laugh. If you can say these things out loud, say them as loud and for as long as you can. It can help make the other thoughts go away. I know firsthand life with intrusive thoughts ocd can get better i've been dealing with this condition for over 10 years and have found much relief by learning how to quiet my mind and keep the parasite at a distance this skill is not only useful in dealing with my ocd it also helps me be more patient with others in my life i've become an excellent listener and learned how to use the energy i used to put towards ocding into finding compassion and solutions for others I still get tricked by the parasite from time to time, but it's much less often and milder when it happens now. I can even laugh at it a lot of the time. I'm sending much love to any of your listeners or readers who are suffering with intrusive thoughts OCD, and I'm happy to answer questions they may have. And then she also added um, about her relationship with her husband, um, the height of my intrusive thoughts happened about three years into our relationship. I was experiencing health problems on top of a lot of personal stress, and all that was all that was going all that was going on led to my intrusive thoughts coming on so strong that I could no longer ignore them. The parasite attacked me all day long, and I didn't have the skills yet to keep it at bay. My husband and I weren't married yet, not even living together, but we were headed in that direction. I knew I had to tell him what was going on with me, but was afraid I'd lose him. Then I said to myself, if this scares him off, better it happens now. I still remember what happened when I told him. He was completely calm and showed no signs of fear or doubt. He said something like, well, there must be something going on that's causing this to happen to you. I know you're not at all violent or dangerous. I was so relieved and started counseling where I was formally diagnosed. My husband was with me every step of the way in my recovery, and we've been very happy together for over 16 years. Thank you so much for that. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what is? When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I
1: could stay here forever.
0: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I can't imagine how difficult it must be for somebody dealing with that and thinking that it's a reflection of their own morality or ethics. Uh, One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com if you have never tried online counseling i highly recommend betterhelp.com i do it every week and i love not having to leave my house i do it via video with my counselor donna and she helps me work through so many issues uh she is she's just awesome she's compassionate and wise and uh, really helps guide me without telling me uh, what to do and that, to me, is a sign of a good counselor. So if you're interested in trying BetterHelp, uh, just go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's a good fit for you. And you need to be over 18. We are also sponsored today by... Early Bird CBD. I have struggled with insomnia in the past and the I've I've tried CBD with other companies and it was very kind of hit and miss as to when it would when it would work and when Early Bird approached me about being a sponsor on the show the first thing I asked was do you have products that have Zero THC in it because I'm a recovering addict and I don't want to recommend something that has THC in it to um, people out there that may struggle with stuff like that. And they said, Yes, we do have products. And they suggested, I told them about my insomnia and they suggested I try their nighttime uh, gummies. And man, have they worked like a charm. Um, I'm just, I'm so happy since I started taking them. I have not had. A single night of of insomnia um, so if you're thinking about cbd or want to know more about it um, go to earlybirdcbd.com um, and they'll be happy to answer any questions that you have um, they carry top quality manufacturers That's their stuff is extensively tested for safety and potency and it has really, really competitive pricing. And each order includes fast and free shipping. Um, I'm just a big fan. So you guys can get 20% off your first order by going to earlybirdcbd.com slash mental. And then also use the disco- discount code. I'm probably pronouncing that the discount code MENTAL for 20% off your first order. That's earlybirdcbd.com slash MENTAL with discount code MENTAL for 20% off your first order. And as always, I put the links to all these uh, things under the show notes for the episode. Uh, and then one more survey before we get to the interview with Al. This is an awful moment filled out by... A trans man who calls himself a bird the color of the sun. And he writes, I'm a survivor of sexual assault. It took a long time to tell anyone, but I've done a lot of work with therapists and psychs, and I thought I was past the worst of it, but I was definitely wrong. Fast forward a couple of years, and my family moved to a different state where we knew no one and had no support system. It was okay for a few months. But about that time, all of the Kavanaugh stuff was on TV everywhere. I fell into a really deep depression and began really struggling with what I didn't know was PTSD. I've struggled before, but this was by far the worst down of my life, and I became extremely suicidal. I was having panic attacks, and what I found out were flashbacks, all the time. And sometimes I'd just fly into fits of rage, even though I've never really been an angry person. I kept trying to get help but being put on wait lists and told that no one was taking clients and pretty much felt just completely trapped and lost all hope of finding help. It got so bad, I started to keep bottles of sleeping pills and medications in my car to end it all in case I needed to. And I picked out several places on the rural, rural, fairly unpopulated roads where we live as I didn't want to do it at home and traumatize my parents. I know it would traumatize anyone, but I thought it might be easier for a stranger to heal from than someone finding their own child. So basically to set the scene, it's been a bad night after a string of bad nights and I decide it's time. I get in my car and drive, eventually pulling over in some grass and shut the car off. It's like 3 a.m., but since it's July and we live in the cozy realm of Satan's ass Indiana, it's still like 90 degrees out. Whatever, I try to write a note but crumple it up and reach for my stashed pills in the glove compartment. I mean, really, what else is a glove compartment for? It's way too big for gloves. I finally get the stupid calf cap off only to find that the goddamn humid-as-fuck Indiana climate has melted all of the pills together. I couldn't get a single fucking pill out of any of the bottles. While frustrating something about it made me laugh so i drove home and went to sleep about a month later i checked myself into the hospital and finally received some desperately needed help and while it's still hard i'm doing a lot better lately
1: every little thing feels like the end of the world that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are
0: social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grab them by their throats and let them down to the floor and watch the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with the very funny Al Lubel uh i've been a fan of yours for a long time Gra- <laughs> he and grace here are having a little love affair over there mm-hmm. she is she, al just said to me before we started recording uh dogs love me i think they think because of my crazy hair they think i'm a dog right <laughs> mm-hmm. uh the documentary that you're in mentally al mm-hmm. um where, where can is that publicly available now yeah, no, it's not yet, but
1: it's uh, this Friday. It's uh, going to be part of the L.A. Comedy Festival. I wish I had the. Uh, I have it on my computer the information.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'll I put send... it under. I'll put it under the show notes for okay. for this. I'm not sure when this episode will air. Will, okay. will air. Okay. Um, but I am excited to sit down and talk to you, Al, Al. And I worked together years and years ago, probably 25 years ago, uh-huh. and you're just one of those comics as. People say in the trailer for your documentary, um, people like Sarah Silverman and Judd Apatow, uh, how before there was an alternative comedy, you were an alternative comedian. You were Mm -hmm. marching to the beat of your own drum. Uh, Mm -hmm. Your stuff is smart, absurd, personal. Mm -hmm. Um, You just you had your your own voice when I, when I worked with you and then, and you did the Tonight Show with both Johnny Carson and Jay Leno. You did right. Letterman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of us never n- knew what happened.
1: Right. I know. I'm not so sure either. I remember I ran, <laughs> I ran into an agent that had known me in the nineties. He was my agent from point in the nineties. And I saw him in 2011. I went to meet with him here in LA and he heard, he said he had heard I committed suicide. <laughs> uh, wow. But but no, actually I didn't disappear What happened? The last Letterman I did was 2008 mm-hmm. And then I moved to, back to L.A. here in 2011 Which was a form of suicide I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just wasn't getting work out here uh, At nothing, hardly anything You know, mm-hmm. flappers I started doing stuff at flappers But not much Which is a comedy club in Burbank Right For our listeners Yeah And uh, But just virtually nothing And so uh, I started I uh, started to survive, I, I, I kept putting it off, putting it off, because I didn't think I'd be good at it. And I also didn't want to do it, but I started driving for Lyft. Mm-hmm. Uber rejected my car. I had a couple of dents, but Lyft mm-hmm. accepted it. And uh, then I actually was surprised. I actually started doing well as a driver. Like, I figured I had to do well, and mm-hmm. I had good ratings. I, I did it for six months, but then I, I really wanted to get back. I had been living in England. I started doing the Edinburgh Festival in 2013. Mm-hmm. And have you heard of that Fringe Festival? Oh, yeah
0: big deal yeah it's
1: really good and so I won some award there I won 2,500 pounds for a best show award solo show and uh so then I got an agent out of it and then he said come back in 2014 I'll get you gigs so I lived there for like eight months and he got me gigs all over Europe and England that was good Mm -hmm. then in 2015 I came back and I did Edinburgh again I did 14 and 15 in Edinburgh Mm -hmm. and uh then I did well again. I got nominated for an award in '15, and then, in, like an idiot, I came back to LA instead of staying in England. I should have. Right. I always reg- and I regretted it big time and coming back here because there was no work. I was getting all this. I was in Edinburgh uh, every night doing my own hour, and then suddenly back in LA begging for five minutes. You know, wow. and it's so depressing that crash. Yeah. In reality, I was this comedian, and now I'm not a comedian anymore, because if you're not performing, you're not a comedian. So, are you going to move back there? Well, I did. When I, when I ended up doing it, so I finally got a little money together. A friend loaned me some money, and, uh, and the, help, the lift helped me a little. And mm-hmm. uh, so, in 2017, I went into Edinburgh again, mm-hmm. and then I, I made up my mind when I went. I didn't buy a return ticket, you know, because mm-hmm. I felt the pressure of using it back in 2015. I had already bought the return ticket. I didn't have much money. I had enough to stay, but... I figured I want to I'm not going to get a refund on this mm-hmm. it was Norwegian Air and I figured I'm going to use the ticket you know I shouldn't have used it and uh, so anyway uh, I did go back in 2017 didn't buy a return ticket so I didn't feel any pressure about coming back and I've been there for two years and uh the only reason I came back was I got a gig for a lawyer's association. They contacted me in San Diego.
0: Al, Al used to be a lawyer. Do you still have your right. um, uh,
1: license? Legally. I'm, I'm a, But I'm on what's called the inactive list, gotcha. uh, which means you pay less dues, a lot less. And uh, you can't practice law. But if you ever do want to practice law, all you have to do is pay the dues for the year. And you should be a lawyer. So I am technically a lawyer. I'm on the inactive list, but when I think about it, you know, uh, even when I practiced law, I was pretty inactive.
0: What was the bit <laughs> that you used to do about, uh, defending, uh, a m- murderer, somebody that had yeah. stabbed somebody? What, oh, right. what, what was, I, what was the I bit? was like,
1: uh, I wasn't a very good attorney. I'd be like, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, my client is charged with robbery, faces up to 50 years in jail, but enough about him. <laughs> was it that one?
0: <laughs> the, the oh, the other one. I know it was, was, uh, you, stabbing you, in the chest. Yeah. Yeah. Was,
1: you know, I, I had a. All the evidence was against my client. And uh, I, so I said to the witness, uh, now you say you saw my client stab the deceased in the chest? Yes, I did. Did you actually see the knife pierce the skin of the chest itself? Was that it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I remember you came up to me and said you liked it.
0: Yes. Cause right. Don't you yeah, do that? Didn't
1: you do dinner? dinner and movie I did. I did. Yeah.
0: For, for like 16 years. That was but, but then your, you your joke was stage somewhere. Yeah, so, uh, so you, you, did you see the knife pierce the, pierce the skin? No. So what you oh. saw was my client stabbing a shirt,
1: right? So you merely <laughs> saw him stab him in the shirt. Can you believe I just forgot it? Like, I've just had a burger, and it's, like, diluted the brain from my brain. It's taken the brain. And I knew when I was telling it to you, it seemed like I'm missing something. (laughs) And I told you the setup. But actually, I did the joke, you know, just three nights ago for the lawyers. I did the joke. But, yeah, so you merely saw him stab him in the shirt. And then I go on with, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, my client, uh, uh, as the late great justice Oliver Wendell Holmes stated, it is better to let a 100 guilty men go free than to convict one innocent man. My client is guilty, let him go.
0: <laughs> Do you remember that part? That, I that don't was, remember that part. That but, was the closing. Uh, so the name of the, of the documentary is Mentally Al. Oh. And and I heard a bit of your story on Mark Maron. And mm-hmm. It was one of the reasons I wanted to, to have you on, because it was a great fit for this show. We talk about, you know, mental and emotional struggles, past and and present. Where, what are the the struggles that that you have had? When did they start? What do they look like now? Well,
1: you know, I think they really started, I noticed my parents started sending me to a psychiatrist. So I guess they noticed it. Uh, where was, where were you raised? Queens, New York. Okay. So it was probably when I was like, you know, I'm getting nine or 10. I remember reading an article about Johnny Carson in the paper. I'd never heard about him. And it was about Johnny Carson. And, it, and that was when he was uh, like in the middle of his Maybe 1970 or something. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. But I just, it just came back to me. And uh, actually, my psychiatrist uh, was a guy, a, a Roman, like a refugee from this World War II or something. He was mm-hmm. a well known psychiatrist. But anyway, they, they gave me, I didn't know it, but they gave me Ritalin. I had a bad reaction. I remember I took all the furniture out of my room, brought it into the living room or something. I was just, I don't know. <laughs> I was trying to move, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they got me off that. And then they started seeing, I went, to, we went to group. Me and my mother and my father went to see a psychologist in on Queens Boulevard, and it turns from that I learned that the psychology. Then I started seeing him alone, and he told me my father's not going to change, so forget about him. Mm-hmm. And my mother started seeing her own psychologist, but the problem was I was an only child and very smothered by my mother, wildly overprotected. She was terrified of me getting hurt, you know. So she didn't, you know, she. I guess the psychologist told her she had to let me out to play with my friends. She wouldn't let me out a lot to play ball. She was afraid I'd get hurt. Oh.
0: Have you have you ever talked with Fred Stoller? Yeah. I'm okay. Sure. There's a lot of similarities. A lot of similarities. Yeah. I'd like would, to think you, I'm sicker. <laughs> would you do me a favor and just silence your uh, your phone? Oh yeah. Is that on. I didn't even. Yeah. yeah I, I just heard a, I heard a ding. I just like, heard a ping. Yeah. No, problem. I well.
1: Yeah. Uh, so that that's your issue, huh? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Traumatic. Um, no, I'm sorry.
0: It, uh, actually. Um, one of the issues I had growing up was a was a mother that that uh, did not really have boundaries and kind of spousified me and mm-hmm. and that's what and, I yeah, uh, am thing. yeah kind of emotional uh, covert incest same like side. no physical boundaries and right. um, yeah it fucks with your head. Have you ever read the book "Silently Seduced"? No. Oh, you should read it. Oh, really? You okay. should read it. Yeah, because it's uh, I, I I think it'll it'll ring some bells for you yeah it's by uh, a guy named dr kenneth adams and he is the guy who coined the term covert incest okay um so uh so you were saying yeah so uh very over yeah i
1: was smothered and spoiled incredibly spoiled my mother served me food in bed uh i demanded it but she gave in until i was 17 a senior in high school not every time but I, i remember coming home from school lying in bed and watching tv And should I make her change the channel for me? I go, channel seven. (laughs) This has got to stop, Alan. My psychiatrist says I should not be giving (laughs) in to you like this. Channel, come on, channel seven. And she'd come in and change it. Oh, my God. And so I tell stories about that. But uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it was... Sane, you know, what were the boundaries that that she crossed when you talk about her her smothering you? What were she, she was didn't do the physical? It
1: wasn't inappropriate touching. Like right. that. But I mean, she would make the bath. When I look back on it Alan, the bath's ready. Alan, come on into the bathtub, Alan. Take your clothes off, Alan. But I didn't take it off in front of her because I hit puberty late, and I think one of the reasons I hit it late I was I was really terrified of growing up. I didn't want right. to. I remember now I hear it, but back then I heard it too. Kids wanted to grow up. I can't. Went, I'm this, I heard this kid today. As two days ago at a coffee shop, I'm almost 13, you know, uh, right. like they right. want to be 13. Oh, yeah. I was dreading every moment because I really? didn't feel, first of all, I was like a king at home. My father sarcastically called me the king yeah. and because he was kind of angry, I think I got away with everything, yeah. but see he worked nights and he was a pharmacist. So he wasn't there ever. I was an only child. So it was just me and my mother and occasionally my grandmother came to visit and I became actually very close to my grandmother my mother's mother. So that helped me. And one psychologist once said, I think the, she is maybe the reason you're not like a mass murderer. You know, she gave you like humanity. I could joke with her. I got you. She wasn't, she was overprotective of me, but not like, in some ways, not as bad as my mother. And she related to me. Like we play cards together. We watch a TV, the million dollar movie on Channel 9 together on television. Gotcha. There was some, someone to like, you know, relate with, with my mother. It was all mommy, get me a 10, like, oh, you're a bat. You're a brat. You're a spoiled brat. Go fuck yourself. Some she you should get mad. You go fuck yourself. So, uh, but my mother was very funny. She had a good sense of humor. So i um, now I look back on it and there was a lot of good, so, good to it too. It's right. sort of like I was thinking about it today. It's like Dickens, the best of times and the worst of times. And I think, you know, and I didn't ever want to move near where I grew up because I grew up in fresh Meadows, Queens or Jamaica Queens, they call it. And, uh, But I I used to think it was because it was so painful, but it was also so good in a way that I was like king. You know, it was like uh, most kids didn't, you know, I was like, to my mother at least, and to my grandmother. My father resented it a little, but he never fought back and pressed against it. And, uh, but he was very childish, my father too, too, because uh, I remember I was jealous of the other kids. They acted like families. Their parents would come home, they'd sit and have a family dinner. We never had that. My father would leave at four in the afternoon to go to the pharmacy. So there was never, I was served food in bed by my mother and I insisted on it. I was was angry. I think I I didn't know consciously I was angry, but
0: unconsciously I knew I was angry. It wasn't a real family. If you could go back in time to any age and say something to you or your mother or your father or anybody, what would you say and what age would it be? I'd I'd have a few days to think about that. Okay. <laughs> so you the just... lawyer in you is like, I don't want to commit to that.
1: Right. I mean, yeah. off the top of my head, what would I say? Uh, you know, I mean, to be serious, I would say, uh, I'd say, you know, things will uh, things will get better. Before they do, they'll get bad, you know, worse probably. But you know, there's a good chance things will get better and. Uh, I would say that to myself and you know, you learn through pain and you have to have pain in life. I don't think anyone gets through, goes through life without pain and pain is an important part of this whole thing. It is through the struggle you learn, Yeah, you know, and, uh, so you always keep in mind that the struggle is painful, but you're getting a chance to learn.
0: What give me some some of the dark moments, some of the the lows in your struggles. Yeah. You know, and I like well, these questions because <laughs> I like dwelling on the negative. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Finally, someone's saying, "Give me the dark struggles." I just try, always try to steer the conversation to
0: my dark struggles. Oh yeah, but that's, not that's not this podcast. That's not this podcast. That's good.
1: But uh, well, one thing I remember, like. Uh, you know, I always wanted to hit rock bottom was the thing. I need to hit rock bottom. I'll never grow out of this thing unless I go all the way to the bottom. Because
0: When you say this thing, do you, well, do you mean row, not, wanting, a, not wanting to I'm grow I'm up? Not wanting to
1: grow up and taking money from my mother. You know, mm-hmm. she would send me money. Or I'd ask for money, and she'd always send it to me. So mm-hmm. I never had to, like, go th- through the pain of facing being completely broke. I remember one, one time I tried to do it, like, 23 years ago. I actually was totally broke, and I didn't even have enough money for a candy bar walking home. And it was, my stomach hurt, and I went to bed hungry, and it was hurt. And that was good. But that was, you know, but again, see, the problem is that even when I go through periods when I wouldn't ask my mother for money, sometimes on her own, she'd send it. And then it would be hard to turn it down, because there's the check. Right. You know, she made it even harder for me. You know, it's yeah. like, I didn't ask for it. And I said, don't send it. And there it is in the check. It's, it's like drugs. It's like, there's the drugs. Relying on the drugs. Relying on my mother. You know, and what I needed was to have none of that. And that's why I've done better. Sadly, my mother... Uh, died like, uh, in December 31st. Well, she, two years, my mm. mother died. And it is very sad. Cause I was very, it was the best, I was super close to her, but not in the healthiest way. Like, uh, she was the most important person to me. And I, she is a funny person. She was very funny and kind and a lot of very kind, but didn't know from boundaries and gave into me. Like I come home from high school and, uh, knock on the door and she'd be there. And I go, where are the goodies? And she had, I had to go right to the kitchen, uh, the refrigerator. I opened up, she didn't have bakery items. Mm -hmm. Take me to the bakery now. And she'd have to take me to the bakery. She just gave, I was a tyrant, you know? And so I had a sense of entitlement at, you know, which is healthy in a way. Like I certainly never didn't feel unentitled, but in the outside world, I was insecure because I knew I was a huge brat. I knew the other kids weren't getting away with it. And I also didn't have the power I had in the outside world because without my mother, I had no power. What what were your relationships like with partners? Well, I never really had those. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a couple of slaves. No, I'm <laughs> no but uh, well, I did have a. I had uh, finally. I, I was afraid of girls. Totally afraid of growing up. Yeah, terrified. I remember. You know, I told this story on a podcast, and didn't realize it's arguably a, it's not a crime. But I, you know, it's. Uh, I was seventeen. Never kissed a girl. Never touched a girl. And I remember I was, it was uh summer camp uh, in, uh, it was like a bungalow colony next to Kutcher's Hotel in the Casco Mountains. Mm-hmm. And I was terrified of girls. I and mean, people younger than me, like 15, 14, they're dating, they're doing, mm-hmm. I was terrified. Never asked one out, never touched one, never kissed. Anyway, they encouraged me to go. And so a, a 13-year-old girl like me, and we were holding hands, walking. Mm-hmm. And I, when I told the story in a podcast, someone said, oh, I never thought of it that way. But she was 13. But I was I mean, well, all well, we did, was hold hands. But she was confident, and I was terrified. I was 17. I remember a 15-year-old girl there at that thing was telling me to relax. You should get a girlfriend. You know, everyone was younger than me and more grown up, more mature. Was there a concrete, specific fear? Well, it was just anything. Well, I had no confidence. Uh, I had hidden, had into puberty. Like I had no, well, actually, I do remember that bungalow colony. I was terrified to touch myself. I didn't even know about masturbation. No one told me about it. Uh, You know, I had no brothers to tell me. My father didn't tell me. I remember one time my mother came into my room when I was maybe probably 13 or 14 and told me about the man inserts his penis into the woman's vagina, but I didn't even know about getting hard or anything mm-hmm. like that. I didn't know. So I do know when I was, I do remember at least when I was 17, my penis would get hard and I'd be uh, lying in bed and sometimes I'd lie on my stomach, but I never actually did anything, never touched myself, mm-hmm. never, but I would have wet dreams, like i wake mm-hmm. up, but I was also a bedwetter until I was 14. You know, because uh, my mother, again, gave in to me, mommy, I'm bed- yeah I remember for some reason I had screamed the word niacin. It was like my private, because I must have been, I made it was a joke that really didn't make any sense. It made very little sense, but I must, when I, one time I was bedwetting and I must have been dreaming, because I'd watch TV all the time. I must have been dreaming about a Wonder Bread commercial, which would always be on the air, where they list the vitamins. Mm-hmm. And at the moment I woke up from the bedwetting, they must have been on niacin. Because I scream out the word that's in my head, niacin, niacin, and then, and she was always irritated by me having to come in. So then, just the word niacin got together with irritation, and I loved to irritate her because that was my way of creating boundaries, a little, a little distance.
0: It, 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 it sounds like a bad marriage. Oh, yeah. you and your mother.
1: Yeah, it was a
0: horrible. And I like didn't a know couple it. bickering.
1: Yeah, and I didn't know it was bad. There was not really that much communication, you know? And I remember like at that summer that when I was 17, another thing that annoyed me, we went somehow shopping one afternoon and there was a girl that was probably 17 or 16. She had the girl from the, sit in the front with my mother and I was in the back seat. And that just seemed weird. It's like she was chauffeuring. I was like the child and the other, I don't know, that just seemed... What was your mom's childhood like? I think she was very spoiled, but my grandmother had two daughters... And, uh, and also her first child, was a boy and died at birth. So I think my grandmother was wildly excited when I was born because I was the only male grandson. It was, it's a boy, it's a boy. They were so excited. My mother's sister, two years older than my mother, who's still alive. And she had two girls. So my grandmother was wildly, ever, I was the special one, and also my mother was the most special one to her mother. So Selma, I think, was always jealous of my mother, because right. my mother was the second born. Selma was
0: the first. Did your grandmother have boundaries? Where did where do you think your, your mother uh, learned her boundaries or lack thereof from?
1: That's a good question. I I don't know. My grandmother was just wild about my mother. I don't know in the childhood mm-hmm. what my mother grandmother did for my mother, but it was all, everything... Some will always say, everything's Ida, 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 my mother's name. My grandma's obsessed with my mother, worried about her, worried about, her. I'm worried about Ida, I'm worried about Ida. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know, I don't, I doubt very much my grandmother served my mother food in bed or anything like that. And my mother also, I'll tell you, I talk about this in the one man show, but my mother wiped me, my, my ice cream, wiped me, wiped me, you know, wiped my ass until at least I was 12. Wow. Now I'm not saying it happened every time. I don't remember that, but I remember coming home from, uh, College, I mean, not college. <laughs> what is that? Is that a Freudian slip of some weird way? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think so. But anyway, uh, uh, sixth grade. I was 12. Must have been seventh grade if I'm 12. Or it could have been, yeah, maybe seventh grade. But, yeah, I'd come home for lunch. At least she let me walk on my own. You know, she let me do that. Walked all the way out. I mean, it be a 20-minute walk from the elementary school. And I, I remember I'd watch uh, Jeopardy with Art Fleming. It uh, was on TV, a game show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember being in the bathroom going, wipe me, wipe me which I would do when I was three and four and five, but she never stopped it. She'd always say, Alan, this has got to stop already. This has got to stop. But she never did stop it. I needed someone to stop it. You know, she never did. So I kept doing it. And 12, she wiped me at least. And the only reason I stopped is I knew my bar mitzvah was coming up at 13. And I I remember feeling a little pressure, like you're going to be a man. And I think that kind of stopped me.
0: It it almost sounds, and don't let me you know, put words in your mouth, but it it, it almost sounds like there was a trade-off that, you know, for you giving into her smothering you and controlling you and keeping you from kind of individuating, you got to say change the channel and these and the, almost like subconsciously you knew that you were owed something for the sacrifice you made to quell her anxieties is that right. would that be fair
1: i think so i don't know because i consciously i didn't know i i just knew i, I had an anger at her but i didn't know i was angry and only right. through therapy years later did a shrink one said to me i think you really are angry at your mother when i was like 30 he told me that and did that so, r- ring true oh yeah well at 30 i was because i was already starting to resent She used to demand, demand, and I did it to, when I would take off from a flight, I had to call her when I got to the airport, and I had to call her when I landed, and my grandmother wanted me to do that too, because they were so worried about me. I just, and the shrink, started seeing the shrink right after I went star search, and uh, Mm -hmm. I was 31, I told him, he goes, that's got to stop, it's going to stop, you're going to tell her. And I told her, I said, the shrink says it's got to stop, and it was very healthy to get it off. You know, that I didn't have this I resentment of this the umbilical cord that never got cut yeah. and this anger that I had unconsciously. I didn't want it, but I couldn't, I didn't have the courage to say to her, this stops because I was so undeveloped emotionally. I didn't have the courage to say it stops. I was too much. I wanted it to stop, but I didn't have the sense of adulthood, the sense of separation to even say I want
0: separation. Has it always been difficult for you to stand up to people outside of your family, or do you have no problem with that? I'm getting better at it now, because I was thinking about this today.
1: I'm finally getting better at it, because I don't want to say the celebrity's name, but years ago, like 30 years ago, I was friends with this celebrity. He wasn't a celebrity yet. He was just getting started, Mm -hmm. and he always helped me out on stuff, because he was a lot younger than me, and and, uh, one time I called him, and he got this big job with uh, working with a company. Uh, and I called him. I said, I really need your help because we, he gave me an idea for a sketch and then it was a tour. It was I had just won Star Search, right? Mm-hmm. And his idea was to get like one of these tourism companies to come over to my house and give a tour of my little tiny little <laughs> small little room right. because I'm a star now. I want Star Search and like to right. <laughs> capture their awkward faces being right. toured around this pathetic little room on Hayworth <laughs> Avenue. So he gave me that idea, but I, I don't remember what got me anxiety. I wanted him to come right over to help me. Right. And I said, he goes, no, I can't, I'm, I'm working here. And I go, please, please. He goes, I can't. He got really angry. And I was like, I never heard him get angry at me before. I thought, right. how could really, you can get that angry at me? Or, what's going on here? So right. he was just beginning to grow into what he became is huge. <laughs> right. But my point is that only today did I notice. I have a friend that I've been doing some favors for, and she did a lot for me. Hmm. And uh, I've been doing favors. And then she wanted me to take her to look at this car in Cerritos. And... I said, I'm not going there. I don't have the time to do that today. And so then she said, okay, there's in Van Nuys, too, we could go to. I go, okay. But in the past, I may have been like, okay, you know, but I said, no, I'm not doing mm-hmm. it. I thought, wow, where's this coming from? Right. You know, and I finally, I'm getting to do it. Why? Because I went to England for two years on my own, terrified, scared. Like, I've done a few scary things and I've been in a lot of pain. And growing through that pain, I got a little sense of self through like, the agony of pain. What are, were the scary things? Well, just first of all, I remember the first time I went to England was, well, in 2001 I went, but uh, I had a gig in Manchester at the comedy store. My agent booked me for that. But that didn't scare me so much because it was part of a gig. I mean, it was like I was getting paid for it. They're flying me out there, you know, so I was part of a thing. I think uh, Nick DiPaolo was on it too. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, so I was part of a group. So that didn't scare me. But for some reason, well, I now know the reason. But in 2013, I was getting no work out here and I wanted to see. I had just a little money and I wanted to see maybe if England would be a good thing so I figured I'd try to book a couple of things in England in London just to see if it was mm-hmm. okay. So I did book just two little rooms for very little money but I, uh, I, my friend drove me to the airport in the morning and I started crying in the car saying I was really scared. I'm really scared just crying and he goes, what are you doing? I, I'm scared. I I never, been, I never went to England alone and just, I'm just crying like a baby. He goes, just relax. It'll be okay. I was just terrified, you know and then when I got there I got to the hotel room, which I booked on my own, and I remember being in my room crying, terrified, like I'm alone in this foreign country. And I called this guy that I met uh, when I was performing in Montreal, a very nice guy, and I, I, he wanted to help me on, get on something. I can't remember. In Canada, it was whatever. I called him, and I spoke for like an hour on the phone to him telling how scared I was, and he calmed me down. And then by the next day, I was okay. It just takes me a little, and then finally it's like I'm okay. But I was crying at an old age, you know, old, older, mm. you know, way past, crying. Why? Because I wasn't, now I look back on it. I wasn't like part of, I was doing this on my own. Mm. I never did anything before an agent was sending me. I was, you know, but it's totally. And, and, and also your whole childhood, you had no autonomy. No autonomy. Yeah, I know. And like, I remember the first feeling I've ever had of autonomy, autonomy I was thinking about this recently. I went to San Francisco uh, in 84, the San Francisco International Comedy Competition to try out for it. Me and my friend Dan drove up there together and uh, we drove up, we drove up in my car. And it's a very funny story. Like I kept wearing the same, the owner of the laugh stop in Newport beach gave me his big ski jacket, like a huge red ski jacket, but it had some tears in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm the least pe- person that wears the same thing every day. Like I don't, right. I, I, it's dirty. I don't care. I wear the same thing. I think it's depression and OCD, but I just keep mm-hmm. wearing the same thing until someone really screams at me you know right. but the feathers kept coming out all the time and in the air in the uh, wind of the car the feathers are flying <laughs> in the car <laughs> and my friends getting really mad at me but it's like you know, I never even thought do I fix the hole do I do it's too much for me it's just my mind's in my childhood in my head I'm in my head I'm in my head with fear and worry I don't care about feathers and anyway what's my point oh so I drove up there with him and I ended up getting he you know he didn't get into it but I got into the festival I came in They only had 40 acts in that San Francisco festival. I came into it, but I wasn't ready to really be a good comic. This is like 84. I'd only been doing Mm -hmm. it two years. So I came in like 38th out of 40. But uh, I did it, did the whole thing. And uh, anyway, my point is, then I ended up staying there in the Tenderloin area. I remember I asked my friend to borrow money because I was so broke. Me and uh, Dan got completely broke out there. Dan couldn't go to his parents for money. I knew I could but I was trying to hold off and not do it. So I was trying my best to hold off and we were living in a summer house. Uh, like they rented their home for the month of August for me and then they came back, but I got the flu. So they let me stay for a whole week being sick in that guest room. They were pissed Mm -hmm. off. I was sick for a whole week. Anyway, then me and Dan got in my car and we had very virtually no money, like $70 left. And, uh, I made the mistake of we rented a room and uh, in a seedy place in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And we, I said, I was terrified of roaches. I always mm-hmm. was. I said to the guy at the desk, "No roaches." He goes, "No roaches. No ro, no roaches." Please, it was a joke. It's like such an extreme joke. We go up to the room, open the door. Roaches everywhere, like a, in a movie, like if one of these movies where the roaches take over the world. Right. It was all flying. I mean, everywhere. Like I literally like forty roaches on this table. Oh my it's god! Like you couldn't invent, I couldn't believe it. So immediately close the door. Go back downstairs. And the guy's gone. the The desk is closed. Oh, of course, right, right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Lost all the money, and all I only had like about eight bucks left, right. So this shows how instant gratification oriented I am, because I always got just what I wanted from my mother, right. We have like about five, six bucks left, and I go in. With, I I only have six. He has nothing, and I go into like one of these like convenience stores. I buy a Playboy for five fifty. <laughs> because <laughs> I had an article on David Letterman was the center of the... Article. Oh, it wasn't for the... It wasn't sex. for the... No, I, I wanted to see that, but I wouldn't yeah. have done it if it wasn't about Letterman. 50 cents left. And dang, he couldn't believe that I would... Just no sense of proportion, no sense of the situation. So that night, we only could find a place to park... It's a funny story, like we uh, we parked near where we were living for that whole month. It was mm-hmm. like the mountain, Mission Avenue or something, it was like up in the hills a little, like 20 minutes from downtown. Mm-hmm. So we found a spot near, but I was still very sick with the flu. So I started vomiting in, outside the car, like really loud in the hills with the mm-hmm. reverberations. And Dan made a, really made a funny point, I didn't know. he goes, the lights, This is like three in the morning, the lights of every house are lighting up from the noise, All, the, whole, <laughs> the whole neighborhood, light after light after light. <laughs> so I was like a disaster, you know. But anyway, my point is, So finally we had no money. So I asked, I had this friend that lived in San Francisco and he kindly offered to loan me some money. And then he said to me, and then I felt guilty. So I mistakenly said to him, you know, just want to let you know I could get money from my mother. And he goes, well, if you can get money from your mother, I'm not giving you nothing. So I had to go get money from my mother, so mm. I blew that. He was going to lend me money. But the point is, I, I held out for a while. I got a little. And we ended up living in the Tenderloin, this really shitty area. I'm saying, you ever hear that? It's oh, like, yeah, it's rough. Yeah, very rough. And we were asleep. actually sleeping on the floor. Didn't have money mm. for a mattress or anything. And uh, So I, to make a long story short, oh, I got a phone sales job. The only, I think the only thing I actually sold these magazines to, I luckily called a comedian. I didn't know it was a comedian. It was blind calling. Happened to call a successful, nice comedian named Evan. Can't remember his last name, San Francisco. But uh, he ended up buying it, you know. But mm. anyway, Dan lasted at the job a little more. He met a girlfriend there at the sales job. I ended up two months later coming back down to L.A. And this was then I drove home alone. It was the first time me driving long distance alone that I ever remembered. And I remember feeling this exhilaration. I'm alone driving from San Francisco to back to L.A. And I felt like, wow, I feel like a person. First time I actually felt like a person. You know, I remember I've driven alone to San Diego for a couple of gigs. Previous, but that's like an hour and a half, and I did get a, a little lose. buzz. But this was seven hours alone. How how old do you feel emotionally? Well, I remember when I was like thirty one, seeing that shrink, the first uh, psychiatrist I saw as an adult. I remember he told me emotionally I was pre adolescent. He said I was like eleven emotionally, and I really did feel that way. I mean, yeah. like I had had, I started fooling. I had a girlfriend when I was twenty one, and she told me I was infantilized by my mother. I remember she used that word infantilized, but. uh and then she cheated on me and I broke up with her and I never really had another girlfriend after that uh, since. And, uh, but
0: now... That's a, that's a long time.
1: That's... that's a, Well, I've gone out with women a little, maybe two, three dates, but okay. nothing really as a girlfriend. Yeah, it's just afraid, the fear of commitment, the fear of finality, the fear, like maybe I'll meet someone better, Why, how can I pick this person that's going to be someone better. And any, everyone always tells me, all the therapists say, which I probably agree with, you're just afraid of having one and you use that as an excuse.
0: Yeah, fear, fear of intimacy, fear of being smothered.
1: Smothered. But also, I have high, I want an incredibly beautiful woman, because <laughs> um, I'm spoiled, you know? It's mm-hmm. like I want them, but I also want them to have a great personality, I'm like spoiled like that too. Just a completely vacuous, beautiful woman wouldn't be enough. It's very hard to get that, especially as you get older especially when you don't have that much money. So it's very hard, but I still am holding out for that, you know, and so like, cause I feel entitled to yeah. the incredible beauty, you know? So it's, this is also the sickness of, I feel I'm so special
0: right. that I
1: deserve this incredible beauty. And also because I'm so insecure that I need that incredible beauty to validate myself. Look what I can get, I'm better. Th- because I think that's why I really got into stand up. It wasn't, I wanted to be a star. I didn't really want to be, I, w- I liked comedy. I saw the movie Lenny, about Lenny Bruce, Dotson and I was attracted to it, but I didn't really become a comedian because I, I want to express myself as a comedian. I want to mm. be really funny. I wanted people to love and idolize me and treat me like my mother, but maybe in a healthier way than my mother and also to respect me. But when I'd see the people on Johnny Carson come on and they'd all talk about their next project, they all seemed so happy and proud of themselves and the audience loved them. I wanted to be them. A happy, proud of myself person because I had low self-esteem from being such an animal to my mother. You, you're an animal. You're an animal. Go fuck yourself. But on the other hand, you're the greatest-looking guy in the world. You're the best. You're the best. So I had these mixed. That messages. sounds a little creepy. Yeah, yeah. Mixed messages. Extreme. Right. You're the best, and you go fuck yourself. You know. So I had these huge differences in my head, and I felt bad for being such a brat, and so I had low, very low self-esteem in some ways, but an incredible high. But the thing is. We, Yeah. So I always, so I want that incredibly beautiful woman, I think, because first of all, I do like beauty, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, but also I feel it will validate me in some way and make me, so I think becoming a comedian was a way of making me a better, making me more acceptable. Like I'll feel better about myself.
0: if I'll have more power, more leverage in negotiating a, a, uh, partner. Yeah, that's true, but not so much because I want them to like me just for
1: me. That's how narcissistic I am. I don't want them to like me because I'm a star. I feel I'm good-looking enough, I'm great-looking enough that they should definitely want me. In fact, I feel I'm better-looking than them. (laughs) And if I get this incredibly great-looking woman, I'll let her know that. I'll make her feel worse about her looks. (laughs) <laughs> so I have this huge narcissism thing going, but I'm self-aware. That is, is right. charming, kind of. Anyway, my, <laughs> <laughs> but my point, I'm trying to figure out that point about why I uh, do The scariest, want, the, the,
0: the scary things that you've been through.
1: Oh, the scary, but also you said, what age do you feel like? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And so I remember I was visiting my cousin. I was kind of proud of this, actually. Two years ago, I stayed with my cousin who's a therapist, actually and i wasn't close with her as a kid because i was closer with my mother's side of the family mm-hmm. my mother's had two sis has two daughters mm-hmm. my mother's aunt my mother's sister has two daughters and so i was never that close with my father's side but carol is a psychologist and i stayed at her house 2 years ago before i went for edinburgh and i asked her what do you think about what age do you think i am emotionally and she said i put you at 21 And I thought, oh, really? Because I told you that shrink, I told her the shrink, you know, when I was 31, so I was like 11. She goes, no, you now have just driven Lyft for six months. You've actually made a little money. You're a little more on your own. You've had your first real job kind of. Because when I was a lawyer, the guy had me on salary for six months and he was losing money on me. And he said to me, "I, I can't put you on salary. I'm losing money. The problem with me is part of it's OCD, but I would spend too long on like motions and briefs. Because I wanted to make it perfect. I have this perfectionist kind of mm-hmm. thing, which may be another reason why I am the perfect looking girl. It's gotta be perfect. And no one's perfect, but I'm still you're looking, but I know no mm-hmm. one's perfect. Anyway, my point is that uh I would spend forever on these briefs. And like one time he said he submitted it to uh the judge or something, the brief, and the judge said this is the best thing I've ever read, but my boss lost money on me because I spent all these extra hours. So it was I had no sense of proportion, you know, no sense no right. business sense, you know. So he put me on a per job basis you know, where I wasn't making enough to survive. But uh, I was doing the stand-up at night, which was better for me.
0: I had a little time. So how many years did you practice law?
1: I'd say two years. Okay. You know, the first six months was full-time, and then the, the rest was per job basis. And then, yeah, from like 82, 83, and then 80 f- to 84, maybe three years. And then I started going on the road. In the. F- I, started, I went like 10 months on the road, starting in the fall of 85 to like the end uh, the June mm-hmm. of 86 was like a lot of months on the road. I really mm-hmm. got experienced. But uh, yeah, so uh, so she said 21. So now mm-hmm. where I put myself, maybe 25, 26 emotionally.
0: And you're how old? I don't
1: know. Maybe even that. I don't even know if that. Uh, 63. Yeah. Very painful to say it. You know, because I don't feel... I mean, emotionally, I don't... Like, I've always heard when you get older, you don't really feel that old. I mean, emotionally. But I am noticing I'm a little getting you know i'm still emotionally very childish but uh you know when you sense death coming it brings a little maturity to you i think
0: it's also a little freeing
1: in what way i i,
0: I find you know as my body ages and i'm and i face my mortality uh i'm also able to care less what other people think of me right because i just picture well i you know it won't be that much longer until I'm <laughs> until I'm dead and then I won't have to worry about it so why am I why am I worried about it now right uh, and and I think the more we come out the other side of battles and anxieties and things we needlessly worried about the more I can remember that as I begin to worry about something needlessly that mm, I can go right. oh this is similar to that thing that I was worried about before mm. and I think if you're still standing after a couple of decades and you've been through the ringer, uh, I don't know if you can ever reflect on that and say, wow, I, I do have certain strengths inside me mm-hmm. um, that I, I have found has, has helped me become uh, less of a fearful person, but I still wake up scared, I think, every day of, of one thing or another, whether I'm not gonna do enough or I'm gonna make mistakes or people are gonna need too much from me, you know, what, whatever. Uh, there are days when I'm like, I have to, I have to go to the grocery store and do laundry. I can't do it. Mm-hmm, yeah. I get, it's, that's insurmountable. Right. And all, all of a sudden in my mind, laundry, is going to be three hours where I can't do anything else while I'm doing it, and the grocery store is going to be two hours, and there's mm. going to be traffic. And in reality, I could probably knock them both out in an hour. Right. But sure. I don't think that they just. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, they take on this, this, gigantic proportion emotionally for me, and it's just this kind of vague, nebulous feeling of it's just too much. It's just too much. Well, it's a lot of the, what's helped me a bit
1: is that Buddhism stuff. and Like Eckhart
0: Tolle, you know, have the power of oh, now. Yeah. And especially A New Earth. That book for yeah. me is, uh, there was a couple of years where I would just read a paragraph of that every morning. Yeah. And that, I think, has been as important for me as getting sober and going to support groups. Right. Yeah, I know. It really helped me. And then
1: another guy, like online right now a lot. I don't know how you pronounce his name, but is it Saduru, S A D H uh, G U R. Sadguru or something. He's another guy that's one of these uh, mystical kind of like... He grew up in India and became... But he has a lot of profound things to say, yeah. and and that is definitely helped. But I, from reading Tole, the whole thing about the mind, the ego, mm-hmm. that,
0: and yeah. negative self
1: talk. Yeah, and it's, it's such a like practical. If, if book. I think about, yeah, if I think about anything, I'll go to the negative, and yeah. so I have to train myself to. And it's so hard for me, it help. Walking, taking a walk, helps me take some action. Like if I have to write, because mm-hmm. it gets something going in me, but the fear abates a little, and because mm-hmm. the the brain isn't as strong, the fear. Yes. So I getting have
0: to, into action. Yeah. Is,
1: is such right. a big reliever of stress. Yeah, I know. But it is, tie- same with you. When I wake up in the morning, I'm just lying there and the brain's going. Yeah. And that's the worst because yeah. the brain always goes to the negative. And, uh, yeah, it's terrifying. So I guess, I don't know. I, I don't. Part of me doesn't even like saying I'm 25. So I'm, because I, I think for me also, the fear of death, I've never wanted to die. I'm terrified of it. And so I was always afraid of growing up because I felt yeah. that growing up, I'm getting closer to death.
0: So I felt if I stay a child... I'm um, warding it off. I'm more afraid of suffering than of dying. Right. That's right. the part that scares me. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid
1: of suffering too, but I'm also afraid of dying. Mm-hmm. Equal. I think it's Equal.
0: So what are the, uh, the name of the documentary is Mentally Al. What right. are the mental issues that are addressed in that? Anxiety, OCD? Anx- yeah, anxiety, OCD,
1: the fear of growing up, uh, the fear. I've always afraid, been afraid to become a very successful comedian mm-hmm. because that to me is a sign of adulthood. And that to me is a sign of getting closer to death. Everything to me is the fear of death is terrifying. I think because my mother was so afraid of my death. You know, someone would say, when Alan dies,
0: he will live to 100.
1: <laughs> my mother would say to them,
0: he will live to 100. The so, trailer, they show uh, Al's mom in the trailer and she does talk like that. Right, right. <laughs> the
1: character, real
0: character. Uh, character. A real character, like, mm-hmm. like out of a Neil Simon play. Right, I know. Yeah.
1: yeah very, she's got the exaggerations all with her. Yeah. Yeah, so she, but you know, uh, well, I was very sad when she died. Like it was very, uh, and I spent a whole week with her in hospital. She already had, had a stroke and she wasn't responding at all. But I spent that whole week with her lying on a couch next to Mm -hmm. her in the bed and she lasted for like six days. And that was cathartic for me. And of course, my joke is the best part, she wasn't talking. (laughs) 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 But uh, no, I I feel I can make jokes. She has a very good sense of humor. She would like that. But anyway, the point it was cathartic is to be with her, but without having to talk you know and uh and I felt good about being with her and I would you know I wouldn't have had it any other because I did really did love her I was so close to her too close and in an un in some ways healthy and some ways un, most ways unhealthy
0: also I I I think the experience of going through something as terrifying as losing your mother and not running from it but having a front row seat for seat mm-hmm. for it and seeing I imagine that there were some beautiful moments in it that yeah, it sucked and and was probably terrifying, but it didn't kill you. It didn't... Right. It didn't... But I
1: do feel bad and, and guilty. Not that bad, but I mean, I did go to... She was in a nursing home back mm-hmm. in... Uh, but she was. Con- she had dementia. She was like 94 or something, mm-hmm. but she totally knew who I was and she could have a regular... People wouldn't know she had dementia if you had a conversation with her, but if you talk long enough, you could see her memory wasn't very good. And right. But anyway, my point is... She was there in the the nursing home in 2000, but I still went to Edinburgh because I felt I had to get out and be a comedian. I had to get Mm out. So I felt guilty. I'm an only child. But my cousin was living there in Florida. She would come visit my mother. My aunt was there. But, you know, I did go. And my mother lasted like, you know, four months. And she, I talked to her every week Mm -hmm. and... But I was kind of resentful about having a call. She demanded I call at least once, she, at once a week. And I didn't like that demand. Like, I felt like, trapped. Like, I have to? What is it? Some kind of deal I'm, we made? I mean, I didn't make this deal. Were you still taking money from her? No, at that point, she didn't have any money. So that was like for like two, three years, she had no money. And so that was healthy for me. And like, yeah, I had no, that's why I drove Lyft, because I had no choice. I was, you know, I was down to zero dollars. I mean, I remember one time me and my friend had no money for food. She had no money. She was letting me stay at her house for free. I was letting her use my car. This is back in 2016. And she was helping me clean out my storage facility because I wanted to make it smaller because a lot of my, uh, to Mm. save money. And I luckily, I found, I had once bought at Whole Foods one of these huge water bottles to put water in, but like super huge. I've never used this. I'm not going to carry around this super huge, like like five gallons. You ever see this huge plastic jug? You had it it filled with change? What? You had it filled with change? Right, no, I didn't have money. Oh. No, I didn't have it. I thought okay. someday maybe I'll have a lot of water. Yeah. Really, so someday I'm going to carry around a lot of water. Like I'll carry it in my car. i yeah. have this heat. so every time I want water, I'll just go out to my car and get the water. It's sad. <laughs> I didn't need that jug like that, but it just stupid purchases, right? Luckily, I saw it in there in the storage. And I, Whole Foods doesn't have a thirty-day thing. You don't have to do it in thirty days. I knew you could return it any time. I never used it, so I got fifteen dollars for it at Whole Foods, and we were able to eat that night. But it got to the point where I got on food stamps. I was on, uh, what do you call it, Uh, welfare for like two months, got off that, but then I stayed on food stamp for like six months. And then finally, then I started driving Lyft and I was able to get by, but Uber rejected me because I had a couple of dents. And Mm -hmm. so it took me, I was living here for like what? Uh, I started uh, Lyft in November 2017 and I had gotten back here in uh, September 2015. So it took me two years to
0: drive Lyft when I could have started it immediately I'm shocked you got your driver's license at all. <laughs> yeah, well... Did it take you a long time to get no, that? No, I could, somehow I, I was thinking about that. Somehow
1: I got it in high school and I was... You know, your I mother could, must have
0: been terrified at yeah, the idea she, of you driving.
1: Yeah, but no, but she let me do it. I mean, I, I guess she wasn't that bad in some ways. She was okay with me doing that, but there are other examples. I'm trying to think of like these crazy examples where she didn't want me to do stuff,
0: you know? Can you can you think of it? Oh, I can
1: think of one right off the top of my head. She didn't want me to call... My father died when he was 60. He got... Bladder cancer, 55, and so he died at 60, and that was sad. I was only 19, and that was a big traumatic thing mm-hmm. for me. Uh, but uh, his father last lived till about 100, my grandfather. So I was like 25. My father had been dead five years. I was living in Newport Beach, and I wanted to call my grandfather, who would have been probably like 95 or something, just to say hello. I hadn't talked to him in 10, Your 15 years. Your father's father? Father's father. talked talked to him in 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have told – they didn't tell him my father died because they didn't want to hurt him, you know? Mm -hmm. So he'd always say, where's Maris? Why doesn't Maris call me? My grandfather was living like in a workman's compensation home Mm -hmm. or something. He still had all his wits, totally. Mm -hmm. So I asked my mother for my grandfather's number and she wouldn't give it to me. I go, why, he'll curse you or something. It's just like paranoia, he's jealous of you. He'll curse you, it's too dangerous. So my mother had this craziness, like worry. They had this thing, uh, this Jewish thing called Kanahura. I don't know if you ever have kanahura. Kanahura. Kanahura, Kanahura, if someone, says you look handsome, Conor kinda Hurry, because they'll put a spell on you because they're jealous of you. Uh, they're, they're saying you look great, but it's dangerous because they're going to put a spell on you to hurt you because they're jealous of you. So they, they had that, you know, my mother had that from the old country. She came yeah. in like from six years old from Poland. And she took after my mother, my grandmother, who had the same thing with the Conor kind of Selma, the older sister, didn't have that stuff. I
0: think. Did she emigrate before the Holocaust? Yes,
1: before the nineteen thirty. So something like that. Yeah. So it was, my grandmother, luckily, was paranoid and had a feeling something bad's going to happen. Sometimes it pays <laughs> off. <Right. laughs> Sometimes the, the, uh, the suspicions yeah. uh, pay, pay dividends. But she had a tough... So when they came, luckily, my grandfather, my, my grandma's husband, came first and became a painter, opened up his own paint shop mm-hmm. and did well economically. He painted for this bank. He had a contract. But anyway, he was here for two years before he called for my grandmother and the two Selma and my mother right but he had already started having a mistress out here so I didn't find this out until later I was older but uh, so my grandmother was very jealous and upset about it and eventually he left the mistress and she committed suicide because he left her But so again, I think my my mother came from a broken home of a husband that had a mistress. They didn't feel close. She, my mother, was five. Selma was six when they came, or seven. So they never felt close to him because they didn't know him when they were two and three Mm -hmm. and four. And he had a temper. He was a nice guy, but he had a temper. So it wasn't a close. It was a fractured family. So I guess I could see where my mother would have some issues and problems in raising me and, and also it took 12 years for them to have a kid my father and mother my, my father was 41 my mother was like 20, 30 and it took 12 years to have a kid so by the time they finally had me they were so wildly thrilled you know and so it was too much pressure on me you know the whole thing Alan, Alan, Alan you're my life you're my life Alan I do jokes wow. about my mother and people say, it's been reviewed and they say like you said as that psycho my life Alan I live for you Alan my life you know, wow. and I didn't realize I was kind of. She kind of would sound like that sometimes. It has that psycho quality. I live my my reason for living, Alan. My entire reason. She said that to me. My reason. I go, Ma.
0: I know you love. You'll never know. You'll never know. Oh my ah, god! Oh my god! Right. Wow. It's well, Al, thanks, thanks for coming by and, and sharing you. your story, man. I, I can't you. wait to see the full uh, documentary. It's called Medley Al. And um, I I would have, uh, it's, it seems like something that's just ripe for Netflix or something. Well, they
1: did try to sell it, but they got what I get.
0: You know, I mean, like
1: if I try to do this, we don't know who you are. So they were like, we like this documentary, but we don't, no one knows him. And so it's a catch 22. Well, gee, they'd know me if you'd air it. Right. But then the whole point is no one knows why does no one know and they these guys think I'm fun very funny and they think mm-hmm. why I should have more success and why doesn't he so it's a study of why doesn't this guy have more success gotcha. so it's a study about a guy why that, Alan, right, right, right. why are you not the king uh, right and she would say stuff like you're the best <laughs> and, you know but but also don't play it safe don't take chances so mixed messages wow uh so but anyway so yeah so they say why is he you know we can't sell this no one knows him and so but the the reason the, the documentary department. exists is no one knows me right so you know but it's business they don't want to take a chance you know so right now so they had no success selling it to netflix or mm-hmm. so they've entered it in some festivals it's gone into a few gotcha. and it's gone into this one so hopefully it can do well in festivals and uh you know people will we'll keep me and up, there's a, like a lot of stuff with me and my mother in it so that's All a guys. good thing you know when i visited her
0: yeah keep keep me updated and if there okay. becomes a, a way for people to watch it uh publicly uh other than having to go to a festival I'll, okay. uh, oh thank i'll you. put it on the put it on the show notes
1: thank you very much thanks for coming. Could al. you raise me
0: <laughs> uh many many thanks to to al uh I love when I have a guest that that truly makes me laugh and also goes goes deep and gets vulnerable and honest about what's going on in their in their brain many many thanks to al one of our sponsors for today is iq bar uh you know there there are a lot of protein bars out there that you know, benefit your body the cool thing about iq bars is that they also benefit your brain they have six nutrients each bar has six Brain nutrients like omega threes and vitamin E and ten to eleven grams of plant protein. Um, it's the person that created them noticed that there was kind of a void in protein bars out there because a lot of them were also meant to be energy bars if you were going to go hiking or something like that, and so they had a lot of carbs in them, and he wanted a bar that you could eat when you were at work and you were hungry and you wanted to have something to kind of boost you but not leaving you crashing afterwards and uh, they're paleo friendly friendly (laughs) they're paleo friendly they're vegan they're non-gmo they're great for keto dieters and They're ultra low carb. What I really like about them is they're not overly sweet um, and they're not overly carby. Uh, They just, they taste like the ingredients that are in there and they have some really, really great flavors. I am a huge fan of the chocolate sea salt. Um, I also dig the almond butter chip and the lemon blueberry. So at 160 calories per bar, IQ bars are the perfect snack to stay full and focused throughout the day. Right now, you guys can get three bars for free. And just pay $3.95 for shipping when you text MENTAL to 29071. And this is a special offer exclusively for you guys. Text MENTAL to 29071 to get three bars free. One more time, text MENTAL to 29071. Uh, if you want to know more about IQ bars, we'll, uh, also put the link to this and the show notes for the episode. So we got some surveys for you. I don't know if I'll get through all of these. I always bite off more than, than I can chew. This is uh from the struggle in a sentence. And this was fil- filled out by a guy who calls himself anxious ed or anxious ed and About his anxiety, he writes, I worry so much about the future that I worry about how much I do it. And about having erectile dysfunction, he writes, I get depressed because I'm lonely, but the thought of being with someone and my junk not working freaks me out more. And then a snapshot from his life. I started hooking up with a girl. Three dates in, time to get physical. I find every excuse in the book not to. You know, one of the reasons why I wanted to, to read this is because a lot of times there's there's something going on underneath there, you know, whether it's trauma or uh, something else that that with the help of a good therapist or support group can start to be rewired or unwound. And also I have found... Uh, because I've struggled with fear of intimacy, and I've struggled with ED before, and I've found that ED meds really help me relax in the in the bedroom. And I wish that sometimes I didn't need them, but sometimes surrendering to what is is the place for the solution to, to be found. This is also a struggle in a sentence survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself I try. Actually, she's a, she's a teenager, and about her anxiety, she writes... Uh, anxiety. It's like, logically, I know there's nothing to be scared of, but my chest tightens and my stomach turns at the thought of going outside. And then a snapshot from her life. Being in a moment of happiness and having to try to fully appreciate it so I won't forget that I can be happy later on. I really related to that one. And there's a moment that I always go back to, and I especially like it because it's a moment that didn't involve anybody else. It was just a moment of kind of sublime joy and, and and peace. And I was playing hockey and I was standing there and it was a they were about to drop the puck for a face-off. And I just remember taking everything in, looking around the rink, looking up at the lights of the rink, and it almost felt like sunlight. I just felt so warm and at peace and it's like in that moment I felt like I felt every good thing I had in my life and I draw I I draw on that moment sometimes because it didn't involve me needing somebody else or some external thing I suppose it was helped by the fact that I love playing hockey but I've experienced standing back there waiting for the puck to drop thousands and thousands of times but for some reason that that one, it it just really I just felt so much gratitude. This is an awfulsome moment. Uh, this might be one of my favorites, filled out by a woman who calls herself hypomaniac. And for those of you that have never experienced hypomania, this is such a great description of it. She writes i'm so excited to be driving the middle of fucking nowhere iowa why is everyone not obsessed with freddie mercury one day i'm gonna sing another one bites the dust to a drunk crowd during karaoke i think i will be pretty great but even if i'm not they will all be drunk and it won't matter i will be sober because i'm sober now i'm also on a cocktail of meds lexapro lamictal buspar you know the good shit thank god meds don't fix everything I can still feel like this in secret sometimes, in the car, so my boyfriend won't won't know how excited and scary I can get. Beam me up, Scotty. Someone in the bar during karaoke, maybe a good-looking guy, will find out that I'm sober, and he will think I am unlike anyone he's ever met before. The fact that I'm aging and have acne scars won't matter. I'm so unusual, and I have great hair, so it won't matter. I'm also fun, obviously. Maybe I'm wearing a Freddie Mercury t-shirt so people know I'm serious. I have the t-shirt in my Amazon shopping cart. I'm saving it for a month I can afford it. My boyfriend won't know it's the Freddie Mercury shirt I bought because it just shows up on bank statements as Amazon purchase. I will wait a while to wear it because my Freddie Mercury obsession has sufficiently freaked my boyfriend out. I share finances with my boyfriend. It helps with impulse buying. I'm also enrolled in a debt relief program, and I'm terrified to look at my credit score. Back to reality. I'm really just driving to work in the middle of fucking nowhere, Iowa. I'm blaring queen in my car. Soon I will be at work. I feel good today, so I will get a lot done. People will will say, ah, there she is, getting shit done. I haven't seen her in a while. I forget to eat lunch. I'll go home after work. I'll write things down on a to-do list that I've already done and then I will check them off. I will lift weights and do squats because I know my ass will look like I'm 23 again. My boyfriend in college used to tell me if I keep riding my bike so much I will get a horse butt. I will, I would kill for a horse butt right now. After I work out, I will sit in the bathtub and read. I will wonder when my life will become less boring. When am, I, when am I finally going to show everyone how amazing I am? I will pray to the universe or my higher power to not let my heart beat out of my chest. Bring me down, but not too far down. Bring me down so I can get some sleep tonight. The guy from earlier at the bar will want to take me out and get to know me. I will have to decline the opportunity because I have a partner already. Someone who knows me when I'm fun, but also knows me while I am stuffing Pop-Tarts down my throat with vengeance and crying about my pathetic existence. Someone who knows all that and still loves me, unless he's just faking it so I don't go off the deep end. I will eat 40 Pop-Tarts in five days. The other shoe always drops, doesn't it? Holy fuck. Holy fuck. Thank you for that. That was like a long poem. A long poem about hypomania. This is a struggle in a sentence, survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Moon Knight, about his alcoholism and drug addiction, the evil part of me hiding behind the corner ready to take over and kill me for good. About his love addiction, I can never leave until I am somewhere else already. About his sex addiction, fall in love over and over again until the act is done. About his codependency, Sorry about my depression. You should feel fine insulting me. And then about his obesity, he writes, My obesity defines everything for anyone else to judge. A snapshot from his life, trying to forgive myself after plate after plate of, quote, healthy choices at the Asian buffet. And he comments, to make the podcast better, maybe some of us morbidly obese people. We sound sexy on podcasts. Thank you so much for that. Oh, I love, I love when you guys fill out a survey that gives me a peek into your world. This is from the Love Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Insomniac, located somewhere in Arkansas. And she writes, I love the first smell of fresh cut grass in the spring. Fire smoke at the campground. Wild honeysuckle and onions cooking. Oh, those are so good. I don't know if she means wild honeysuckle and onions cooking. If I knew more about grammar, I'd be able to, uh, parse that out. But anyway, thank you for that. This one is super dark, but I wanted to read it because it's like something out of a Cohen brother movie. Um, it's an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Sunflower, and she writes, When I was 12 years old, I lived with my mom, stepdad, and my stepdad's mom, grandmother, and stepdad. My stepdad's mother was a pill popper and suffered from mental health issues. She loved to lay on her love seat watching La Femme Nikita or country music videos on GAC and smoke Pall Mall cigarettes and chase down her Valium and painkillers with coffee. She was loud, noisy as hell, and never stopped talking. That was until she started to nod off with her cigarette in her hand. I would want to say something so she wouldn't put another burn hole in her couch, but I also didn't want to hear any more about her weird health issues or the same gossip stories about her dyke of a daughter, her words, not mine, or how her ex-husband used to beat her. Anyways, I would spend the summer with my grandparents who lived four hours away. One day I get a call from my mom who shared the same frustration about her mother-in-law. I answer the phone and she says, guess what? I say, Rose died. That was my stepdad's mom's name. She says, how did you know? I didn't. I was being funny. She then proceeds to tell me that she attempted to kill herself because she wanted to get attention from her husband because they were in the middle of a fight. He wouldn't argue with her anymore, so she said, I'm going to kill myself. This is something she has said a lot. My mom then found her about an hour later hanging from the rafters in the garage. I felt horrible. It is so dark. But that is such a cinematic description of that woman and her pain and sickness. Oh my God. I debated whether or not to read that one but I felt like I should or that I wanted to. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Guardian Angel. He identifies his straight. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, he writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And then he doesn't specify. He also says that he's been emotionally abused but uh he he doesn't get specific about that darkest thoughts i work on myself so hard in every aspect of my being and struggle every day to be the best person i can be and help everyone in my life despite crippling depression and many other issues, and I love myself very much, but I hate everyone else in my life for being awful people that never try and improve themselves and make the world a worse place. And it makes me want to kill myself because I can't see a future with other people in it that I want to be in. I think a lot of people relate to that one, especially these days where there's so much divisiveness in our in our country and really the world. And, and it's so easy to go to that pessimistic imagination that that we have and just think we know how it's going to unfold. Darkest thoughts. When I was a kid on a road trip, across the country once, my very religious mother told me that the devil was real and within my lifetime the world was going to end and that I was a very special boy that was going to fight in Jesus's army for the soul of every human and save the earth. Well, that's that's not a lot of pressure. (laughs) That's the same thing as buying your kid a bike. I never felt scared, but rather full of honor and excitement. As an adult, the feeling of wanting to be a warrior never left me, so I became a soldier in the Army National Guard, wanting to do great things with my life and help people in my community or overseas. In six years, I never deployed once or did anything of note, and ended up with PTSD just from the abuse I suffered at the hands of my own comrades in the system I gave my life to. I feel immense shame for never having fought in a war and calling myself a soldier and for getting PTSD just from the same emotional abuse everyone else received, but seemed to affect me more. When people find out that I was a soldier and thank me for my service and ask me if I ever went to war, I always feel immensely ashamed and tell them I don't like to talk about my time in the service and that they shouldn't thank me. I feel like they assume I did go because of my answer. And I feel like a fraud and loser because of it. Oh, buddy, I just want to give you a hug, man. That's a lot on your plate. And then that extra hurdle of feeling like you're making too big of a deal of it. And our feelings are our feelings. And our trauma is our trauma. And it doesn't matter where on the scale it compares to other people's. What matters is, do we process it? Do we begin to? to have compassion for ourselves and to try to become our own best friend. There's nobody that we're as mean to as ourselves. I should say for most of us. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Making love to someone, being present, not having to think about the porn I've seen to be able to have an orgasm. I feel ashamed sharing that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my dead best friend, Julian, some days I wish I would have never gotten off drugs and stopped being your friend so I could have died with you. That is heavy. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish all of my disorders and mental illness would go away so I could live my life happily. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, and no one knows what to do. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. Every day is an opportunity to be the best person you can be in every aspect of personage, not just for yourself, but for everyone around you. The better physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally you are, the more positive change you can affect in your environment, and the more you reap the rewards of tangibly making the world a better place just by being in it. And and I would add, and sometimes it just starts with being kind to ourselves because when we are feeling empty and pessimistic we don't have anything to give to others and it's like we got to we got to keep our battery charged if if we want to make the world a better place and yeah thank you for sharing that This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Alexander Manchild, and he writes, I took my 11-year-old nephew to a convention two years ago. Although he is my nephew, I think of him like a little brother since I was only 12 when he was born and the fact that I helped raise him in a way. I'm told that we are a lot alike. Anyway, the convention was great. My wife dropped us off and we were admiring all the costumes. We took pictures and played video games. I felt that I had brought him to the convention during a time in which none of the special events were happening because it was the only day I could get off work. But it didn't matter. We were there for hours. We had such a great time and I was happy that he did. I drove him home that night and we got out of the car. He was about to say a casual goodbye when I decided I would do something that our family never taught me to do be vulnerable. I said hey to him and pulled him in for a hug. In our embrace, I told him that I had a great time and I'm glad that he came with me. He said, me too, and we pulled away. He quickly walked into the house to hide his tears. It's so beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you for that. It's the moments like that can have such an impact, not only on our lives, but on that kid that might not have a role model of somebody sharing their feelings or being vulnerable or or just seeing that kid. So many people feel so invisible in their lives. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, think murder, get money. I have no idea what that means. Uh, she identifies as pansexual, she's in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. She writes, I was 12 going on 13 and in boarding school and a guy in his senior year sort of groomed me. I was very lonely and depressed at the time and even though he was gross and gave me the creeps, I liked that someone liked me. After he fucked me, we broke up. I don't know how else to put it. He just kind of freaked out. I think it was because he felt guilty or because he knew it was illegal and disgusting. Afterwards, I was very confused, and for a long time, I didn't have the right words to describe what happened. When I talked to my counselor about it, she said, So he raped you? And I didn't know what to reply. Soon after, rumors started circulating that he had filmed the entire thing and that the video was making the rounds among students. Then I also found out that I was not the first girl this had happened to with him. I went to the police, and they did not take me seriously and convinced me not to press charges. They asked me to think about what I would do to his future. This still makes me furious. That that is mind-boggling to me. You know, I, I, I think that is such a boys' club thing to do. And I always wonder if the people that say that, you know, oh, think about his future. Obviously, it's so fucked to begin with, but I wonder, have they done the same thing as that guy? And if they were to prosecute him in a way that they would know that What they did was a big deal? I don't know. She's been emotionally abused. She writes, I was bullied for a long time after what happened with the guy in the videotape, although I tried to ignore it as best I can, and luckily I've repressed a lot of those memories. I was bullied before I went to boarding school as well, and those memories are a lot more vivid, mostly for my weight, being nerdy, standoffish, and weird. Kids would call me freak, disgusting, Fat, ugly, animal. At one point, I stopped talking to them and just growled back. As I got older, I got into the habit of dating a slew of terrible boyfriends. Gee, I wonder why. I would always do whatever I could to please them, and they would do whatever they could to demean me. After a while, I'd noticed that my attempts were futile and move on to the next douchebag. That should be a, t- a t-shirt. On to the next douchebag. <sighs> Any positive experiences? Nope. I try very hard to keep feelings like that at bay because it's not helpful for me right now. Darkest thoughts? I still think about suicide sometimes. I've tried a couple of times and promised myself I would never try again, but occasionally I still find myself thinking about it and it makes me feel guilty. Darkest secrets? I'm a sex worker. While I don't feel shame about my job and I feel like it's the best use I can I can make of my dysfunctions. Only very few people in my life know about it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I used to be very submissive and even have rape fantasies, but after I started doing sex work, I felt a lot more powerful and active about my sexuality because I get a lot of submissive clients. Now, my most powerful fantasy is a loving relationship with a beautiful woman. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? mom dad i'm a hooker and i'm proud of it and i love my job what if anything do you wish for an antidepressant that actually works without making me drowsy or nauseous have you shared these things with others i've shared a lot in therapy and aa and with a few friends mostly i just don't want to scare my family i was always a sad difficult child and my mom worries enough about me as it is My dad is not exactly a beacon of mental health, and I don't want to send him over the edge. My brother is very successful, and I don't want to burden or distract him. How do you feel after writing these things down? Indifferent. I've come to terms with most of the stuff that happened, and I try to focus on the moment instead of dwelling on the past. You know, sometimes I I think we misuse the word dwelling for processing. There's a difference between dwelling and processing. If if we are actively involved in healing, I don't think that's dwelling. But, you know, there's a lot of gray areas and stuff, and I think that's that's why connecting to people who have had similar experiences can be so healing. Because oftentimes we can find purpose in sharing our stories and helping somebody who was maybe at a place where we were months or years ago, and we we can give them hope. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, make it your story. Don't just lie there and take it. If people are going to talk about you anyways, give them a hell of a story. Also, (laughs) always get the money up front. Oh, man, thank you for that. I don't think I'm rustling the papers loud enough today. I don't know. I've got my chair right up against the desk and the trash can in like the worst position it could be in. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself emotionally outed. And she writes, Paula, I've been putting this one off for about two months now in order to figure out how I feel about it. But anyway, here it goes. In the beginning of June, I started seeing a therapist after a cascade of different events of losing control and completely losing my sense of self. I was so hesitant of counseling due to some bad experiences from childhood. My mom forced me to, quote, talk to someone after her her husband slash my stepfather sexually abused me. Let's just say it didn't end well. So finally, I decided out of my own will, I wanted to seek help. After four months of weekly and bi-weekly meetings, I finally felt like I was vulnerable, honest, and was helped tremendously, finally achieving some growth and acknowledgement of my issues. I loved her as a therapist and felt like she really saw me. In September, she suggested I try group therapy. And the parentheses, with your show, honestly, I probably would have said no, but you've opened my mind to to so many outlets of mental health. I agreed with her. The caveat, though was she also said she thought I didn't need individual therapy anymore. This highly confused me because I definitely wanted to go even deeper with her, but after she said that, I started to question if she even knew me or saw me at all. Nonetheless, I started group therapy. I didn't think that this group in particular was a good fit for me. I didn't know what to expect. But most of their issues were not the trauma, family-based ones that I had, and I mentioned this in a polite way to my group. They reassured me no matter who shares your sentiments and like issues, I could share anything I wanted to them. Fast forward. I didn't speak very much about myself, but I offered a lot of advice. At the end of the group, for roughly the same amount of time I saw my individual counselor, it was time the group gave feedback. My feedback from the people I thought knew the least about me Broke me down in a good way. The group facilitator asked me how I felt after, and I said, emotionally outed. This whole time, I thought these people didn't see me or understand me at all, but the things they said rang truer than most of my best friends, and at the end of the day, I have never felt that scene ever since. Thank you, Paul, for keeping me open to new things. It was truly a beautiful experience also want to mention I still enjoyed my counselor, and because it was university-offered services, I have a thought that she could not provide individual therapy while I was also receiving group, but who knows? I'd also like advice on how to know if a therapist is good for you. I have such a rough time trusting my own intuition. I don't think there's any one answer. First of all, thank you for that. I don't think there's any one answer to how do you know if it's a good fit with the therapist. But a couple of suggestions to to think about and ask yourself would be, do I feel comfortable being open with this person? Do I trust their guidance? Um, and what what is the chemistry uh, like with them? And it's hard when it's your first therapist because you don't have anything to compare it to. But it's one of those things i think will where you will know it when you feel it and i think if you're not feeling anything you know after maybe six or eight weeks or who knows maybe even two weeks if it just you feel shut down around that person um but you know in the past that you've been able to open up to other people then i think that would be a a bad fit but again there's no kind of one size fits all for that stuff And finally, this is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Unwell Levi, and he writes, I love standing at the top of Trail Ridge Road in Rocky Mountain National Park at about 12,000 feet in the tundra when it's super windy enough to blow me over. I lean into the wind as it virtually holds me up, like skydiving with my feet on the ground. The mountains are miles away, but I feel like I can touch them. Man, that is such a such a great visual. That is such a great visual. You know, a lot of times we picture nature as it being super green forest, it's really quiet, the temperature's perfect, and I just love that image of kind of feeling a little bit of the fury of nature, but being okay with it. And just being in it I think that's why we sometimes like thunderstorms is we feel we feel that fury but we're also safe speaking of fury <laughs> oh I thought I, I Gracie Gracie come Gracie come <laughs> she's not doing anything here she comes. Let's say goodbye to the nice people, Gracie. Come on up. Come on up. Come on. Come on. There we go. We're going to go for a little skate. You excited about that? Huh? I don't know if this is annoying or not, but I want to share a little of my love, a little bit of my love for, for Gracie with you guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our uh, our episode today and uh, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you're, you're not alone and there is help out there and there are people who will support it. It's just a matter of taking baby steps to find that help and support and the feeling when we do find that support and that love and we feel seen. Is pretty fucking amazing. And I'm glad I took those baby steps to do it. And that's all I got. Grace, you have anything to add? She shook her head, no. You're not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody, up I, know in is bizarrely Everybody up in I know some weird ways
1: way. bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.